flick to there. Uh, if you're going to use the uh, Bible in the pew, it starts on page 49. We're in the middle of a series this summer going through the book of Exodus, this epic story talking about God rescuing the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt and establishing them as a people. We've been working through it a couple of kind of sh- chunks at a time. Uh, and really the whole emphasis of this is what are these stories reveal to us about God? How can we, what different things can we know about God based on what we see in these stories? And some of the different things we've talked about is one is that God is still working. Uh, even when it, maybe it seems like he's not, God is working. God never takes a break, God never stops. He is always working. Then we talked about the fact that God is a God who hears and responds. He knows the things we're going through. He knows the, the valleys, he knows the mountains and everything in between, and he responds to those things. And then last week, we talked about the fact that God is in control, that even, um, that even if life seems like it's going chaotic, God is in control, that he is a God who is present, he is aware, and he is with us. Uh, we've been, like I said, we've been kind of dealing with this in smaller chunks. We're going to deal with a big chunk today. So we're actually going to be looking at Exodus 7 through 15, every verse. No, that's, we don't have time for that. So, um, but really, these, this section is all one kind of part of the story, and so I'm going to hit a couple different spots in between it to summarize the larger idea, but again, what part within this larger chunk of Exodus 7.15, what do we see about knowing God? What can we know about him? And the thing that we're going to see today is that God reigns, not kind of no pun intended, based on the day that we're having. Uh, this was planned weeks, ahead of, weeks ago, um, but the fact that God is the God who reigns. Uh, Before we get into that, let's pray together. God, we do thank you for uh, our community. We thank you for the fact that we are present with you. Thank you for all these men and women. Thank you for making this place what it is. God, for those of our family who are traveling, I pray that you give them traveling mercies, uh, that you would um, just give them a great time with whatever they are, whatever they're doing. For those of us who are here, God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts through your word. God, I pray that you would let us know the truth of who you are, that you are the amazing, all-powerful, majestic God who's worthy of worship, and you love us beyond what we can comprehend. God, I pray that you would let us see a little bit of that today. Speak to us in the ways that we need to hear, that you would be the one speaking today, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so again, like I said, we're going to jump through some larger parts of this Exodus 7 through 15 to see... Uh, how it paints a picture for us of the fact that God reigns. And the first thing we're going to see is this, is that there is God reigns, there's only one God, and this is the God who reigns over all of creation, over everything. In the last couple chapters of Exodus, these first six that we've been looking at previously in Exodus type of a thing, we've heard God, uh, obviously Israel is in slavery in Egypt, Their situation has been getting worse and worse, something that God told them was going to happen. And we hear God telling Moses to go to Pharaoh to say those famous words, let my people go. Pharaoh says, nope, not going to do it. Um, Everybody gets discouraged, uh, rightfully so, understandably so, but they also get very forgetful about the reality of who God is and things he said. So God reminds them of himself, reminds them of what he's promised, and says, go back to Pharaoh and tell them, I want you to let them go. And so this is what we see in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. 
So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up the magician's staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he he would not listen to them as the Lord has said. So, from the last couple chapters, the people are discouraged. Moses is discouraged. Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But here's what you're going to do when you get there. We're going to prove the reality of who I am and who it is that is saying this. And so Moses comes in, and he takes his staff, throws it down, and it becomes a serpent. Can you imagine just somebody having this big walking stick, throwing it down, and then start slithering and everything? We have seen some of the toughest people in the world. If they see a snake, I think about family members I know, and I'm not going to mention any names in case anybody's watching, but I have family members that I know are deathly afraid of snakes. And if big, tough guys were, if that happened, they would be like, ah, and jump up on a table, high-pitched noise, everything. But Moses does this. What the reaction would be, I can only imagine. But Pharaoh says, okay, hey, magicians, you guys, you come in. And they say, hey, we see your sign, your miracle, this thing that you did. We're going to call it. And they do the same thing. They th- and and uh, archaeologists, scholars, people, historians tell us that there's an even way that they can take the snakes and they can do this kind of snake charming type of a thing that make them go as stiff as a rod. They even do it today. And maybe that's what was happening with these snakes. But the thing that's important here is this really specific detail that says, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. It wasn't just that they made these snakes, but Aaron's, who had Moses' staff, that snake ate Pharaoh's snakes. There's two things that this tells us, that this points to us, that are huge. One is that God's power was greater than anything Egypt could throw at him. Again, remember, one of the things we've talked about when we look at the Bible is we have to look at it from its historical cultural context, not ours. This isn't 2023 Chicago. This is a couple thousand years ago, Egypt. And so the significance of these snakes. One resource says this, when Moses' snake swallowed the Egyptian snakes, this event predicted disaster for the pharaoh. A representative snake from Israel's God had defeated one of Egypt's national symbols, the serpent, an animal that would have been considered sacred in this part of Egypt. This was a symbolic of their their culture, of who they were, of what it meant to be Egyptian, everything about them. And God's, Yahweh's, had swallowed, eaten, destroyed theirs. God is more powerful than anything, because this is the epitome of a prelude of things to come. Along with God's power being greater than Egypt's, it tells us that Moses' staff, we've seen in the previous parts of this, that Moses' staff represents God's authority and power. We saw this in chapter 3, when God is calling Moses uh, to, to go to his people, and the whole burning bush story, and everything within that. He keeps talking about this staff, and you're going to use this staff, and I am calling you, and bring this staff with you. Anytime we see the staff mentioned in the rest of the book, 
That's what we want to have our minds going to, is that God has called him to do this. God has given him authority. Moses is God's representative. And here, by bringing this staff that represents God's authority and call and presence, it has swallowed Pharaoh's. God's authority, God's power, who God is, has swallowed, has destroyed, has removed what represents all of Pharaoh and Egypt. This story, this throwing down the the staffs and the snakes and the swallowing and all of this, this is a throwing down the gauntlet moment. This is the glove and I challenge you to a duel type of a thing between God and Pharaoh. This is God saying, I am the only God, Pharaoh. You will bow to me, not me to you. Because one thing that we have to realize during the Exodus, during the story, the Egyptians saw Pharaoh as a god. Not godlike, not, oh, he's so divine, not nothing like that. They literally saw him as a god in their midst. But what is God saying? Calling, he's calling him out saying, no, Pharaoh, we're going to show everybody the truth of this. I am the only God. There is no other God. I am the one to reign. You will bow down to me. This truth is as real today as it was then. There is only one God, and he is the one who reigns. Our God is not an option amongst many. There is only one option, and it is God. He is the creator, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all, the magnificent one, and he is the one who reigns. This is why God's going to tell them later, and again, we're going to get to this in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It can't be me and something else. can't be me and someone else. It's only me. Jesus is going to tell his followers something along the same lines. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus is talking about money there, but it gets to the heart issue within this, is that our hearts can only be directed toward one God. And it has to be the true God, the only God, our God who we worship. God reigns. There is only one God, and he is the one... Excuse me, over all. That goes to the second thing, is that God reigns. He is greater than anything in the culture. He's greater than anything in the culture. Things are going to happen really quickly after this. And this is where we're going to kind of skim through a large chunk of Exodus here, between Exodus 7 and 13. But going into the next couple of verses, specifically in verse 14, chapter 7, verse 14 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. And then the first of ten plagues come to Egypt. God is telling him, let my people go. Nope, they're staying here. I'm going to show you the reality of who I am. It doesn't have to be this way. Just acknowledge who I am, Pharaoh. Let my people go. 
and stop this. Nope, that's not how it's going to be. And God says, I'm going to show you that I'm God. Not you, me. And we have the 10 different plagues that come to Egypt. Water turning to blood, frogs, lice, flies, livestock and pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the killing of firstborn children. To say that Egypt would have been decimated, would have been going through chaos, would have been destroyed in some ways because of these different things is really an understatement. Every single one that happens, this one happens, and then the next one, and then the next one, and the next one, how this would have shaken up their economy, their day-to-day life, their social structures, everything as these different things come. But remember, we're reading this not from an American 2023 perspective, but from Egypt. And it was a different culture, a different time, a different way of thinking about things. And for Egypt, the gods were everything. And to say that gods were everything doesn't mean like holistic, like everything was a god. They thought everything was deity. They believed that there was a god of the Nile, a god of the livestock, a god over the crops, a sun god. Everything that you could see, there was tons of gods and everything was a god. So when the plague started happening, what this is communicating to Egypt is that their gods aren't showing up. Their gods aren't there. Their god of the Nile didn't show up to stop it from being turned into blood. Their god of, rain, of the sun didn't stop, come to stop it from becoming darkness. None of their gods did anything. Every single one of the plagues was showing them that which you're putting your faith in doesn't exist. That which you're trusting in can't do anything for you. Everything you're looking to isn't there. And, to get, and that was the point. They, God wanted them to see the things that you're trusting can't compete with me. I'm calling you to trust me. Across nine of the, nine of the different plagues, statements are made like this. By this you will know that I am the Lord, that you may know that there, are no, there is no one like the Lord our God, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. The Lord will make a distinction between Israel and Egypt's livestock, that you may know there is none like me, that you may know that I am the Lord. Every one of these plagues is letting them see the reality that their re- religious system wasn't real, wasn't true, only God existed. In our culture, Different gods are worshipped, which aren't exactly, we would say, our literal gods the way the Egyptians do, but we can treat them like they are. We worship things like money, pleasure, control, politics, sexuality, whatever they might be. And again, people can say, well, that's not really a god, it's just an important part of my life. But when something becomes our consuming focus, it is just like a god in our life. When we feel like that our life is shattered without it, then it takes the place of God in our hearts. None of, the, none of those things that I mentioned are bad. Money isn't bad. Pleasure isn't bad. Politics isn't bad. Sexuality isn't bad. None of these things, anything you can list, are not in and of themselves bad, but they're not meant to be God in our life. They're not meant to be the one thing in our life. God is to be the one we identify with. And he is the one to guide us. The, everything that we talk about mentioned, the, uh, offers us something, but none can deliver what only God can do. I think about during uh, the pandemic, there was one time 
um, I saw this Instagram ad, and it was for a lap desk. And it was the coolest thing in the entire world. It was really, it was made of this pine wood. It was really wide. It had like all these different like ways of like adjusting and functioning. And I'm like, this would be awesome. The kids are doing school at home. I'm doing work at home. We could just get a couple of these. It would be great. Everybody has their own desk. Like it had cup holders, everything. It wasn't like horribly expensive, but it wasn't cheap either. But I'm like, ah, you know, this will be worth it. It'd be kind of a nice treat. Let's get it. So I have in my picture what this ad is going to present, this nice, big, sturdy, wooden lap desk that comes. The thing that actually got delivered was in a box this big. It was made of plastic, and I think if I put a paper book, paperback book on it, it might have fallen over. I was so angry, so ticked. I mean, on the warpath, trying to get my money back, which I did, and trying, well, this is not what you showed me. I just feel like I should clarify that. I did get my money back. But you promised me this, and this is what showed up. The reality is that anything in this world that offers us peace, hope, joy, purpose, it's offering us these things, but what it's offering is what actually is going to show up is not going to even compare. It'll be good for a little bit. I mean, sure, we could take this plastic thing that showed up and figure something out to do with it, but it's not going to do what it promised it was going to do. And the things in this world that promise us things just can't fulfill. But God tells us, I'm going to give you life as it was meant to be. I'm going to give you forgiveness I'm going to make it where you know that you don't have to identify and feel shame. You are not a mistake. I, I love you. You're going to know peace and joy and hope and all of the, and, and when God promises it, it comes through. What we receive matches the ad. But it's only with God that we receive that. Again, we don't have the religious system that they do, but many ways we do. What's the thing that you give your heart to? Maybe there's some longing within there. Maybe it's for purpose. Maybe it's to feel loved. Maybe it's to be connected. And again, those are all important things. Those are what it means to be human. And we should feel those things. We should want those things. But it's only in God. It's only in who he is and what he offers, the life he offers us, that we get it as it was meant to be, in a way that's never going to fail, and it's always going to be what our hearts are craving for. God reigns, and he is greater than anything in our culture. Jesus said, it says in the New Testament in 1 John 2, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. 1, John, 1 Peter 1 says, all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. When we put our trust in God, that which we receive is never going to fade. It's never going to go away. It's never going to break. It's never going to let us down. God is always for us. God always loves us. And the life he gives us is what our hearts are craving for. And it's better than anything this world can give us. That goes to the last thing. God reigns. He has won the victory which gives us salvation and life. The, the final plague comes to Israel, to, 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 to Egypt. Pharaoh is finally defeated. He says, get out of here, go. 
and lets the Egyptian, lets the, I'm getting my people mixed up, sorry, it's one of those mornings. The last plague comes to Egypt. Pharaoh says, Israelites, get out of here. And he finally lets them go. Moses leads them out and they get to the Red Sea. And that brings us to Exodus 14. In Exodus 14, verse 5, it says this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Egypt go from serving us? So it's like Pharaoh's like, wait, wait, what did I just do? And if you've been following along with us, all of Pharaoh's plans from the beginning of the book until now are all really lame and dumb. Like it's not like any plans he puts into place backfire and makes things worse for Egypt. And here's what it is. Oh man, what have I just done? And so it says he changes his mind. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and he overtook them and encamped them by the sea by those two interesting places. In verse 10 it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They were terrified. Now, again, I think that would be a scary situation, right? Don't you? If you're one of the Israelites, you've been let go, you're, you've a huge march, you get to this big body of water, and you're like, um, are you lost, Moses? Why are we here? I mean, no GPSs, but still, come on. We should be able to look at the stars or figure out a way. Why are you leading us to this big body of water? They turn around, and the one who has been enslaved their people, who's been giving them horrible, bitter, uh, destructive, difficult lives for hundreds of years, is coming barreling on them to bring them back. I think this is a stressful situation. To say that they're terrified that makes sense. But again, we have to make sure we're looking at this from that mindset. And what are the things that we miss from our mindset? And there's more going on here than just Pharaoh's coming to get us, which that's pretty bad in and of itself. And the thing that we, have to, that we might not read naturally to know about the history here is this idea of ma'at. Ma'at. Does that make sense? Ma'at, that word. Ma'at, if, we, if I were to say, ask an American, summarize American life, somebody would probably say the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that's what this week's all about. If you asked an Egyptian to explain their life, they would say one word. They would say ma'at. Now, that, to say ma'at, that's not like an Egyptian applesauce or something like that. Like, I got the ma'at or something like that. Thank you, a couple of you, for laughing at my bad dad joke this morning. Ma'at was everything that was true and just and right. Ma'at was this deep reality of harmony and order and stability and security in the universe. To have, for Ma'at to exist, everything was as it should be. There's no chaos. Everything is great. Idea of universal order. So again, if Ma'at is working, everything is in order. If it's not, there's chaos. 
The Egyptians did everything they could to maintain ma'at, this balance. And this wasn't just theory. This wasn't just conceptual. This was everything about their lives. Again, this isn't our world. This is their world. And here's where Pharaoh becomes really important in this story. To them, Pharaoh was the embodiment of ma'at. He was ma'at physically in their midst, walking in their midst. He was the physical representation of ma'at in the Egyptian world. And remember how we said all the different, everything was a god? This is what we mean by Pharaoh being a god. And so for all the different plagues, none of their gods showed up. All the different things they're experiencing, none of their gods are true. But now here comes Pharaoh barreling down the hill. And for Israelites who lived in this culture, lived in this world for hundreds of years, they would get this concept. That would be natural to understand how their Egyptian neighbors would have thought. And here comes Pharaoh, Ma'at, barreling down on them to bring things back in order. And so think about the stress of that. Oh man, all the rest of them didn't exist, all that. But this is like their last chance. I mean, if he brings everything back, then maybe everything else goes back. This is Pharaoh in the Egyptian mind coming to set things right. His main job is to secure and maintain Ma'at. And so in letting the Egyptians, Israelites go, he realizes, what did I do? I caused chaos. Pharaoh's coming to try to fix things. And so I cannot over, under, you have to grasp how important this concept is for what's happening here in Exodus 14. The chaos that's in Egypt, Pharaoh coming to barrel things down. And then it says this in verse 10, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there is no graze in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not that this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So, again, if I was in that situation, I would maybe feel the same way. I mean, it was bad there, but at least we were living in badness, not about to die by Pharaoh barreling down, right? But then he says in verse 13, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You just have to shut up. Just be quiet. Just be silent. And let God do what God's going to do. This is not a fight between you and Pharaoh. This is between God and Pharaoh. Just be quiet and watch. Why did God bring them to this dead end? Because enough is enough. Why did, he guide, why did he guide Pharaoh down to the sea? Because it's time for the final proclamation to be made as far as who is God, whose way of life is real, and what the fake counterfeit is. God is calling Pharaoh out. And it says this in verse 16. God says, Raise your staff and stretch out, over your, out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh 
and his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians are going to learn something today. This isn't just for Israel. This is also for all of Egypt. That which you've been following isn't real. You need to worship the one true God. This isn't just only Israel can worship the one true God. This is everyone can. God wants everyone to come to him. But they have to realize the options that they've been worshiping aren't genuine, are fake, aren't there. How is God going to gain glory through Pharaoh? Because he is about to show everyone that Pharaoh is worthy of no glory, that Pharaoh is nothing. The Egyptians see Pharaoh as their savior, and the Israelites see him as their doom. And God says, nope. What we're going to learn is that Pharaoh's no God. He's just a bum. It says, Moses stretches out his staff across the sea. The waters part and the Israelites cross. And then it says in verse 29, But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Pharaoh was defeated. God brought them out of their slavery, rescued them, brought them to the other side to a new life that would eventually, again, we're going to keep going in the story. When we see this happening here, what we see here happening with Moses is a prelude of what's going to happen with Jesus in the New Testament. We are enslaved in sin. We are enslaved within, removed from God because of our sins in our lives and what we see the sin in the world. It separates us from him. And we can't do anything to make that right. We can't do anything to set our hearts right. We, look to, we all look, whether we realize it or not, to different things, different people, different situations, different fill-in-the-blank with things that will make our hearts feel fulfilled, healed, loved. We look to all, whether it's people, whether it's friends, whether it's relationships, whether it's fun, whether it's work, whatever it is, we look to all these little saviors to try to do, fill our hearts and fix our hearts and heal our hearts and encourage our hearts. And they all can a little bit. They can put band-aids on gaping wounds, though. It's only God who heals us. It's through Jesus going on the cross. He goes to the cross and he puts all of our sin of all of humankind throughout history upon himself. And he pays the penalty for that sin. The Bible talks about sin is what separates us from God. And the penalty of sin is death. Jesus took that sin upon him and he died in our place, a death that we deserved. But then it says that he rose three days later from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, making it where that doesn't have, that sin doesn't reign in the world. Sin doesn't reign any longer. He has defeated that. He has destroyed that. He is raised from the dead and he invites us into that new life. In the same way that he says to the Israelites, I have saved you, I have redeemed you, I have protected you from Pharaoh, he says to all of humankind, I have redeemed you, I have restored you, I have made it possible for you to come back to God. You just have to trust in me. I don't know what your heart is trusting in. I don't know what your heart craves. I don't know what you're longing for. Again, it might be... And, that's the reality, too, within a church in our type of context. We don't have huge, 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 huge problems. I'm not trying to minimize any of the big difficulties that I know many in our church family have dealt with. 
But in this community, in Lincoln Park, in the north side of Chicago, it's a lot different than some other parts of the world and other parts of the city and other challenges and pains. And it's very comfortable in many ways to the fact that it masks our need for a Savior. It masks our need for Jesus. And we don't realize how desperate we are for him. We don't realize how much we need him. We don't realize how much we need this victory that he's won. We don't realize that we need this life that he gives us because I have this stuff. I have this house. I have this position. I have this car. I have whatever this is. So I'm okay, right? Anything that we point to is like the, the gods of Egypt. They're just not real. Yes, we can tangibly experience them, but they can't do for our hearts what we want them to. You need to trust in Jesus. You need to find life in him because he is the one that's won the victory over sin and death. It says in Romans 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He has won the victory. He has made it possible for us to new life and to be forgiven for sin. 1 Corinthians 15, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has won the victory. He reigns. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to trust in him. He wants you to know life in him. And for some of you, that means beginning that life new today. It means today saying, I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to follow him. I'm putting my faith in him. When somebody says, I put my faith in Jesus, they're saying, I'm making him my life. I'm aligning who I am with him. I'm acknowledging what he did on the cross. I'm acknowledging the reality of the resurrection. I believe that that's true. And I want him to be my savior. He's Lord of my life. Some of you, maybe somebody in here today, you need to do that today. You need to trust Jesus. If you've already done that, then let this message be a reminder to you that trusting Jesus means he reigns in your life, which means everything. He's not just a part of your life, he's all of your life. And so whether it's work or school or the home or when you're by yourself, whatever it is, I want to glorify God in this moment, in this thing, so that people would know who he is and I could honor him with my actions. He reigns and he is worthy of our worship. If you don't know him, I pray you find him today. And if you do know him, I pray you're reminded that he is the great awesome, powerful God who reigns. He loves you. He is in your corner. You just need to trust him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the fact that you are God. I thank you, God, that we don't have that job. I thank you that you are the one who reigns. I thank you that you are the one who's all-powerful, that you're the one who's in control. And we're grateful for your wisdom, for your love, for your forgiveness, for your grace, for your mercy. God, I pray you would draw our hearts to you. I pray that you would, God, help us to have a deep sense of love for you, appreciation and sense of gratitude for who you are and what you've done. God, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you and nothing else and no one else. It's in your name we pray, amen. Hey, if you stand with us and we're gonna close with this last song.